This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. One of your New Year's resolutions this year might have been to get more in touch with your heritage. If you're a New Yorker of Irish ancestry, that shouldn't be so hard to do. But although Irish immigrants and their descendants massively influence the city's culture, many of us would be pretty hard-pressed to define what Irish-American culture is all about. For some people, one thing it's about is music. That's true of Ryan Duns. He teaches an Irish whistle class at Fordham. When I was a little kid, my little sister began to take Irish dancing lessons, and I am an FFK, a former fat kid, and my mom spared me the embarrassment of dancing on a stage, and she thought that it would be safer um, for me and for the world at large if I just stayed in one place. So they got me a tin whistle when I was in the second grade, so now I'm 28, so that's 20 years of playing. And when I was in the fourth grade, they wouldn't get me a set of drums, but they got me a piano accordion, which was second on my list, I guess, like every little boy who wants a piano accordion. And my fate was pretty much sealed at that point. We'll visit Ryan Dunn's class and talk with him a little bit more later on today's show. But first, one person who's given a lot of thought to what it means to be Irish in America is Peter Quinn. Quinn's a third-generation Irish-American New Yorker, and he is the author of two historical novels, as well as a former speechwriter for two New York governors. Quinn is something of an expert on Irish New York. He was a consultant to Martin Scorsese on the film Gangs of New York, and he is the author of the book Looking for Jimmy, A Search for Irish America, that books have now from Overlook Press. Quinn joined me in the studio to talk about what he's found about Irish America. Peter Quinn, welcome. Thank you, Nora. It's nice to be back. Now, I have mainly known you as a writer of fiction, although you did used to be a speechwriter. That's me... fiction, too. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me why you've written this book of essays. Um, because the the books that I wrote came out of my interest in history, the historical novels, and my my interest has always been in history. So I just wanted to take a step back from novel writing and kind of take an objective look at the material that I had used in the novels. Before I did something else, I said, just let me... Let me let me sit down and look over that experience. And I had written a number of essays over the years on um, for American Heritage and Commonweal, the whole the New York Times. So originally I was going to collect those, and then I talked to my publisher, and he said he didn't want a collection of just stuff that I had published. So I wrote new essays for this book. I rewrote ones that were in there, and uh, tried to make it a thematic examination. Not just straight history, really, because I try to be clear in the introduction that this a lot of this is memory. Just trying to go into my own experience of a family that arrived in New York in the Irish famine, 1847, and growing up in the Bronx and having no real sense of that history. And then coming here to Fordham and studying for a PhD under Morris O'Connell, trying to plumb Irish history, and then coming back to Irish American history. Who am I? Where did we come from? I now live in the suburbs, I live in Hastings. I have two children. And the kind of urban Irish experience that I came out of is really fading fast. So I just, you know, as somebody who's through it and watching it go away, I said, let me try to put down on paper what I remember and uh, what I've learned about it. So who is Jimmy? Jimmy is, you know, you read about um, the whole stereotype of the Irish in the 19th century is Paddy. And Paddy is a railroad worker and he's uncouth and he lives in shanty towns. And that's kind of the image of, you know, Irish immigration. But I said... There was actually a stage after that of people who who I think I embody them in three people in the article. Uh, uh, Jimmy Walker, who was mayor of New York, who was this incredible bon vivant. Uh, Also, 
very cosmopolitan, urbane. Jimmy Cagney, who who to this day represents you know so much of the urban Irish experience, and another guy, James Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense, who was also he was a Jimmy who. He wanted to turn his back on it all. He decided that he, he went to Princeton and then um, Dylan Reed on Wall Street, and he didn't want anything to do with his Irish background, but it was in his face and his mannerisms he couldn't get away for. So uh, what I was saying is that the formation of the American urban personality was highly influenced by these Irish-American archetypes. I, I refer in the book to this, you know, there's the, the great Irish-American movie, I think, is Public Enemy by with Cagney, and there's a scene in that where he's driving along in a... Automobile. It's supposed to be Chicago, but it's obviously L.A., but he sees Gene Hollow there, and he pops out. He stops, and he pops out, and he's incredibly well-dressed, and he uh, he does this little dance in front of her, and it's this great combination of musicality and menace. You know, it's it's come down into gangster rap. They love Cagney, and, and because he was defining uh, an urban personality, an urban way to act, an urban way to move, a kind of urban cool that we refer to today. And uh, that came out of what he saw in New York and the Irish neighborhoods where he grew up. And I think one of the reasons the Irish were able to do this was because they came out of, you know, if you look at the famine experience, they come out of the most primitive agricultural situation in Europe, and they don't have anything that they can use in the city. They go from the from like 1000 AD to, the, to 1900 in six weeks on a ship, and none of the stories they have... None of the behaviors they have are really any are useful. They have to invent everything when they get here. And that's kind of the, you know, I think the dynamism of that experience was in that invention. They also weren't people. They didn't have museums. They didn't have academies. Irish Americans are really woefully underrepresented in like the intellectual cosmopolitan circles of New York. But I think they kind of define the working class life. And I think a large part of their DNA is still in it. Even when uh, when Italian gangsters started, like Frank Costello and things, take Irish names, it wasn't just to Americanize. It was also adapting that personality that he has the, these these are the cool people. <laughs> um, well, gosh, I'm excited to be cool. Um, so <laughs> yeah, if, I, we never thought of ourselves as cool. You talked not just about Jimmy, but about a lot of other sort of stereotypical or iconic figures from Irish America or from how Irish America was perceived. You mentioned Patty a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about who Patty is. Yeah. Well, there's a cartoon reproduced in the book. It's a famous cartoon by Thomas Nast, and it has on one side, it's, I think, 1876, and it's the ignorant black vote in the South, and he has Sambo. He has the caricature of African Americans, you know, kind of beaten hat and thick lips and this... Simeon image that whites use for racial stereotypes of African Americans. And it's a perfectly balanced scale. On the other side is Patty. It's the Irish guy who also looks like an ape, also has a batted hat. And Nass' thing is, you know, this is the perfect balance, the ignorant whites and ignorant blacks. And and Patty represented that in the 19th century. There's a wonderful novel, The Damnation of Theron Ware. It's about a Methodist minister. It's a 19th century novel. It's really worth reading. It's in, called Octavia, New York. It's really Utica. If you ever want to read the perception of who Patty was, just read this book. He talks about these. It, it, it's another thing that the Irish were perceived as natural revolutionaries in the 19th century. You know, if you, if you look at the Molly Maguires, the ancient order of Hibernians was like Al-Qaeda. That's what they thought of it. And Patty was this disruptive person who in American popular culture kind of became half funny, you could make fun of him, and half threatening. He was 
you know, a stereotype that stayed with other ethnic groups in cities. Immensely entertaining, but also watch out because he can be dangerous. And what, one of the things the Irish were able to do, which was denied to African Americans really, was they were able to take that image. If you look at fighting Irish was a kind of condemnation of the Irish in the 19th century. By the 20th century, you have you know the fighting Sullivans, as the, the five brothers who go down on the ship, and the fighting Irish at Notre Dame. They were able to take their image and make things that had been negative into positive because of their influence on popular culture. Now, you say that at some point Patty becomes Pat? Yeah, Pat becomes more respectable than Patty. One of the things of the Irish immigration is that they became more respectable as uh, Italian Slavs and Jews poured into the country. Then Anglo-Saxon America suddenly found them less threatening. You read racial descriptions of the Irish in the middle of the 19th century that they were regarded as another race. By the end of the 19th century, all these descriptions began to slip down to Italian Slavs and Jews. Even now in the, immig- the debate of immigration in America, I'm surprised by people often think these any of these issues are new, that these people can't assimilate. They were talking about the same thing in the 19th century. Roman Catholicism was as maybe more threatening to Anglo-Protestant culture on both sides of the Atlantic than Islam is to us. I think one of the most fascinating things about looking at this book or looking at any book about sort of the early, late 19th, early 20th century about immigration into the United States is the fact that these people are viewed as being members of different races and they're portrayed in cartoons and even in photographs as being entirely different people. Yet at some point that just goes away. Yes. Um, you know, there's there are three great immigration waves to the United States, really the, the famine immigration from Ireland, which in a 10-year period, you get more immigrants to the United States than you had gotten in the 70 years before that. And it disturbs everything, and the whole East Coast is in an uproar about this immigration. The American Party has formed the largest third-party movement in American history to stop this inundation of Irish Catholics who are changing the culture and debasing the culture and threatening the political stability. And then with the Jewish-Italian-Slavic immigration, you have the second great wave and the second great reaction, which is eugenics, which is a whole theory of racial intelligence and racial personality and racial characteristics. The first quotas on immigration are really heavily influenced by eugenic theory. In 1923 and 24, they restrict immigration to the country, which is also one of the reasons Jews can't get in the, in the country during the Holocaust. And then um, the third great immigration debate is now. It's just that if you know enough, you know, sometimes you read enough history and you say, you just recognize everything. It doesn't change. The pattern is there. The names change. The events are a little different, but the kind of basic prototype doesn't really change. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest today on the show is Peter Quinn. Quinn is the author of the book Looking for Jimmy, A Search for Irish America. That book's out now from Overlook Press. Later on the show, we'll hear from Fordham Tin Whistle teacher Ryan Duns. But first, let's get back to our conversation with Peter Quinn. I asked him what it used to mean to be Irish American in New York and what it means today. My father, who uh, went to Fordham Law School and was uh, assemblyman and congressman, represented this district in Congress, 
said to me that he thought being Irish was two things. It was you always root for the underdog and you have a sense of humor. And, you know, I think that comes out of tragic histories, that there was a large element of tragedy in the Irish story. You had a million people come across South Street in, in a 10-year period. And in a, it was the famine immigration was as much a route as an immigration of these people pouring in. And looking how they came into New York and opportunities New York gave them and, you know, the pain of their experience and the triumph of their experience, I think it can make you compassionate. I think it can make you hopeful for other immigrant groups coming through. I just don't think this is just an Irish story. One of, one of the things about looking for Jimmy is, you know, when they were in Ireland, they were one people. And the minute they stepped off the boat in on South Street, they were another people. Because nobody who has ever come into New York, you can't just stay what you are. You're always banging up against somebody else. They started banging up, you know, first time they ever saw an African-American or interacted with, with Jews or, or anybody else. They had lived in villages where it was unusual to travel more than three miles from your home. And then this the most rapidly industrializing city. And in a way, I don't think the lessons are just about New York because the process that they went through is going on all over the world. One of the driving dynamics of modern history are people abandoning villages for cities. And they arrive in cities with no skills. They live in the worst housing. They're affected by crime and all sorts of dependencies, drugs and alcohol. All that the Irish went through. They were the vanguard of this proletarian army coming out of agricultural situations into urban situations. Looking for Jimmy isn't just about, I don't think it's just about the Irish experience. I think it's about people who come to cities. How do they survive? How do they remake themselves? What do they find? And what do they go on to? One of the things that you talk about in the book is the difference between the ways that Irish American people dealt with sort of tenement life and communal life and all that when they first arrived and the ways that other groups dealt with it. What were some of the big differences there? One of the simultaneous immigrations with the Irish are the Germans, and Germans tend to pass through New York much quicker than the Irish because this was the experience of my own family. They got to the city. They didn't want to know about the country ever again. The country was, you know, that was a, one thing about the Irish immigration that they were not interested in passing on to. Most of them, especially the famine immigration, they, they never wanted to see the land again. I never heard a good word about farming or, you know, that's all we had been for thousands of years. But they came to the city and they loved the city and they found that the city made them free in, in a way they had never been before as peasants and tenants on other people's properties who worked for other people. You know, my parents and grandparents, they love vaudeville, they love theater, the whole vitality of the city, which the Irish helped make. They just, they they were a swim in it. I think my father didn't leave New York State for the last 20 years of his life. They were perfectly happy where they were. You know, other immigrant groups, like if you read descriptions in the 1840s, the Swedes can't wait to get out of New York. And people want to get back to the land. That's why they're coming to America, you know? Like, like let me get my 160 acres. Some Irish people do go to the land, but they're not part of my book. My book is about the people who got here and like what, you know, I'm really happy I'm in New York, and this is a great place, and that's the feeling I grew up with in the Bronx, so I thought I was lucky to be in the Bronx. Uh, I still think I was lucky to be born and raised and educated here. One of the things that you talk about in your book that I, I thought was interesting is the idea that other than blaming the British for it, the famine isn't really something that most Irish Americans like to talk about. Well, 
Yeah, what what struck me was that my family had come here because of this famine, and what I heard about it as a kid was, you know, oh, the British did it. But there was nothing about what happened to us. I was not interested in the blame. I said, where is this event, this catastrophe, the greatest catastrophe in 19th century Europe, is this reflected in behaviors and things? And then, you know, to look at my own families, people went to college, but we were raised to take civil service jobs. You know, the security that the church provided, that you you had all the answers. And I think having watched their society unravel and collapse, if you then – it began to make sense to me why this accent on security, why this feeling don't take risks, stick with what you know, that it was all not just a historical experience that had taken place 100 years before I was born, but it was woven into how I lived and thought and how my parents reacted. And they had had the added experience of the Depression. So, you know, my father was a um, he was a very devout practicing Catholic, but equal to his Catholicism was the Democratic Party. He would never to stray from the Democratic Party and the New Deal. I still think of the New Deal as, you know, an Irish-American thing. That, that, that reflected this, this sense of, you know, people get crushed in events and something has to be there to help them. And that was that was part of my... My experience as, as an Irish-American, that was the heritage that I was given. I was struck by, I guess, a lack of emphasis on remembrance um, that you talked about in your family and in the, I guess, the Irish-American right. community yeah. in general. Well, why give anybody, you know, this is not just the Irish. It happened, I think, it happens with every group. It happened with slavery. It happened in the Holocaust. It's You don't want to give that to children. It's a humiliating experience. The experience of powerlessness of... You can't feed your family and you're thrown off the land and you get on a you arrive somewhere else where you're a nobody. These are things that people work against and it's not a useful thing to give your children. It's when generations go on like we've gone on and now I'm comfortable, I can look back and I don't have to worry about that powerlessness anymore. That was a fact of life for those immigrants, and that's what they were struggling against. You know, my family was in New York City during the draft riots. There was no folk memory of that. No. Why? You wouldn't say, oh, yes, that was when Uncle Fred was on the rooftop firing at the federal troops. <laughs> and who went to prison? You know, um, Who died of alcoholism? We have this great sense of the immigrant experience, and oh, we all made it. Well, we didn't all make it. Countless numbers fell by the wayside, died as children, died in bad circumstances, uh, were ravaged by unemployment, by alcoholism. But that's not something you want to give your children. You want to make them feel, concentrate on the future. That's why people come to America, not to dwell on the past. I was always tell. Oh, my mother was always saying, oh, that's as excess baggage. What are you worried about that for? Who wants to know about that? It was like, get on with it. One of my mother's most shocking things that I ever did was when I got married, we moved to Brooklyn, which having grown up in the Bronx, she was like, what are you doing? You're going backwards. <laughs> we should be moving north into America. That's why we're here. And, and I, you know, I mean, I understand it. It was a healthy thing in some ways, but uh, I really think individuals and communities, you have to come to, before you can forget the past, you have to come to terms with it. Because one of the things I realized was, yeah, all these forces were influencing me in what I believed and how I acted and my expectations. Nobody lives in a vacuum. We live in families, and the families are part of traditions, and those traditions are part of cultures, and those cultures help determine how we act and think and how we raise our children. And I wrote this book to say, you know, just let me take, I'm going to be 60 this August, so let me just take a look back. You talk about your trip 
to Ireland with your mother and how she's very reluctant to talk about history but suddenly wants to go to Ireland. My father had died in 1974, and I think that was a kind of um, moment for one of the things. She had met my father at a Lady of Solace dance in the East Bronx in 1928 and had never been without him on St. Patrick's Day. And she had the sudden desire to go to Ireland. And I, I just think she realized at that point in her life that she could let the defense down a little. You know, and her mother had come out as a contract on a, to be a maid in 1888 from Cork. And she was never interested in investigating that because her mother raised her not to be a maid. And, you know, I always say the, the one thing, and I think this comes out of the famine too, and, uh, you know, the Irish... The way they were so um, colonized and lost their language and things is part of being Irish-American is self-doubt. You're never quite sure about yourself. And I think that is finally, that's part of my generation. I think that's going away. Um, one of the things you talk about in that essay about your and your mother's trip to Ireland is the, um, is the fact that the church had burned down. And there were no records. There was nothing. And I was I was really struck throughout this book by this really sort of thundering lack of historical records. Well, that's one of the reasons I wound up writing novels. I wrote Banished Children of Eve about the um, famine immigration to New York because I originally figured, oh, I'll write a social history and I'll find my family. I could find death certificates and parish things, but, you know, I couldn't find – there were no letters, no – I couldn't find the people except on those official – documents and as statistics. I couldn't find the richness of their life and the complexity and density and what they were hoping. And I had to reach that through fiction. And there was this tremendous lack of, of records. You know, I mean, we didn't have a stick of furniture, no physical memory of where we had come from, and a very, very tenuous, I think people have the wrong idea of Irish Americans that they're, you know, really involved in their history. And that was not part of the way I was raised. It was the exact opposite. So there was that there was that lack of a record that made me a novelist, I think. And then it was looking back and saying, I want to take one last look, not as a novelist, but as a kind of mixture of memoir and history, uh, and wrote Looking for Jimmy. What does your family think about your interest in history? Depends on what part of the family. <laughs> I think some people will not be thrilled. Other people will be thrilled. I have a 20-year-old daughter at Boston College and 17-year-old son in Hastings High School. And, uh, you know, this is part for them. They're certainly not as interested in this stuff as I am. But, you know, you don't know where, where we're going. The future is mystery. And one of the great things of writing a book, it's like putting a note in a bottle and tossing it out. And you don't know who's going to find it and read it. Immigrant families in particular, I think, are not... As long as you can tell the great stories of how we succeeded and aren't we great, that's... A friend of 30 years is Frank McCourt, and I know um, he took tremendous flack because I think, you know, one of the things of Irish Americans was, well, you tell that in the confessional. <laughs> you know, we're a confessional people, but that's behind a curtain. You don't talk about this. And that's part of the defensive image of the Irish. You know, it's like the riots over the playboy of the Western world. that We don't let people see who we really are because they think we're drunk and disorderly and we can't tell any of these stories in public. Um, so as as we're talking about this, we're basically talking about something that is now making its way into history, if not already history. And I wonder, unless people have sort of an interest in Irish-American New York, why should they care about what you're writing about here? Well, what, one of the things that I'm trying to say about this book is that, you know, that experience changed the city. It created 
many things that are still with us, from popular entertainment to politics. So understanding the present, I think, is coming to grips with the past. That's what I believe as a historian and a novelist and what I'm trying to get at in looking for Jimmy. You know, what what I realized is because I'm writing so much of the book from a personal perspective that we live, I think, under the delusion we're free from the past. And the the more we live with by, with that delusion, the more we're controlled by the past because we're not conscious of what is happening and why we're doing things. And that if you look back and you come to grips with these things and see them for what they really were and the good parts and the bad parts and don't romanticize them, uh, just try to look honestly at it and not deny the ugly parts, you have a better perception of history and you have a better perception of yourself and you, the society you're part of and its potential to do good and its potential to do bad. Well, Peter Quinn, thanks so much. Thank you, Nora. That was author Peter Quinn. His book, Looking for Jimmy, is out from Overlook Press. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's ahead at 730. You'll note that above the note, there's a little tin whistle diagram. For those of us who grew up as Irish-American, one feature of childhood might have been traditional Irish dancing and musical performances. Back in those days before river dance and the pogues, many of us kids found the Irish cultural stuff to be vaguely embarrassing. But for Ryan Dunn's, as we heard earlier, that wasn't the case. And now he's looking to impart his appreciation of the musical aspects of Irish culture to a younger demographic. Once a week, Dunn's teaches a classroom full of college kids how to play the tin or Irish whistle. The class is part of the university's Institute of Irish Studies effort to get Fordham students interested in Irish culture, not the St. Patrick's Day parade stuff, but the real thing. I visited the class, and I spoke for a few minutes afterwards with Ryan Dunn's. One, two, ready, go. My name is Ryan Duns. I'm a Jesuit scholastic or a seminarian in the early stages of our Jesuit formation here at, at Fordham University in the Bronx. I teach a course entitled Introduction to the Irish Tin Whistle as part of the Irish Studies program. The goal of the course really is to introduce students to, the, to traditional Irish music on a performative level. So instead of a theoretical or historical knowledge of the, of the tradition, I aim to give them an introduction based on learning to play the tin whistle from the ground up. Many of these kids come with an Irish heritage that they would at least claim, but one that they very they know very little about. They think Irish music is the sod doctors or what they heard at the bar on St. Patrick's Day. And it's really a lot more than that. And that's always reflected in the music, the music that is passed down throughout the, throughout the generations, the music that ties us all together, especially those of us who perform it. When I was a, a little kid, I was very shy. I was a very shy uh, kid growing up. And I found that as my musical skills got better and stronger, I was able to articulate myself better. It's as though music provided me with a second language that became my first, uh, a language of extroversion. And so uh, I found my voice within an Irish tradition that was much larger than, than I was, and that empowered me to speak and to perform out of that. So for these students, I think it's important to give them a sense of their musical heritage. 
I think that the distinction between the Irish and the Irish American is it, it is more than than just a an easy distinction to say, oh, you're Irish in America. What I teach is Irish American music, and I would like to think of it as traditionally Irish, something that has been handed on to me from my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-aunt, who was a great accordion player, and a nun. I hand that on to these students, and so everything that they learn, that's always going to be refracted through a lens of the American experience, whatever that is for each student. And so for these kids, when I'm teaching them music, I will often draw parallels with Oh, you may have heard this in a U2 song, or did you hear this refrain in the Titanic movie using an Irish instrument, and this is how it's been shaped. What ends up happening is they see things anew through that lens. And that's what I think a good uh, Irish studies program or any, any type of academic program is going to provide a lens through which to see the world. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. You can find our podcast at WFUV.org, and you can listen to past shows in our audio archives. That's on the same page. You can also email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening. Have a fabulous weekend, and Happy New Year. As I walked down through Chatham Street, a fair did me. She asked me to see her home. She lived in Bleecker Street. To me, way, yes, Andy, my dear Andy. Oh, you New Yorkers, can't you dance the polka? To me, way, yes, Andy, my dear Andy. Oh, you New Yorkers, can't you dance the polka? When we got to Bleecker Street, we stopped at 44. Her mother and her sister dared to meet us at the door. To me, way, yes, Auntie, my dear Annie. Oh, you New Yorkers, can't you dance the poker to me, way? This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.